I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Last week, the leak of a dense 98-page legal document in America unleashed fury around the world. Tonight, the nation's highest court confirmed the authenticity of this leaked draft decision of a ruling that would overturn abortion precedent in this country. It's stunning on so many levels. Roe has guaranteed women the right to an abortion, but this opinion would now say it's up to state legislatures. We're talking about 50 years of precedent that it appears now will definitely be thrown out the window. This is the first time in history that a draft Supreme Court opinion has been leaked. It suggests that Roe v. Wade will be overturned for good, completely changing a woman's right to an abortion in America. How did such an intensely personal decision become such a fierce public debate? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, is this the end of Roe versus Wade? I'm Sarah Baxter, and I'm the former deputy editor of the Sunday Times, now based in America. Sarah, last week, there were some amazing headlines when this leak suddenly broke of a decision in the Supreme Court. A draft majority decision by Judge Alito has been leaked to Politico, and it's as it stands, it means the end of Roe v. Wade. For most of the protesters gathered outside the Supreme Court, this is a worst-case scenario. In the other group, people can barely contain their excitement. It's 49 years in the making. We love babies in America. What did you think when you heard it? Well, it hit me like a thunderbolt. I wasn't quite emotionally ready to hear that a nearly 50-year law governing abortion in America was going to be overturned like this. What exactly did the leak say? What it was, was the draft judgment of the majority opinion of the court. It is just a leak. 
it may not be the final verdict, but it looks very much like it. And it came from the majority Supreme Court Justice, Justice Samuel Alito, who wrote a very harsh summary about Roe v. Raid being egregiously wrong. It looks like he's determined, along with colleagues on the Supreme Court, to completely overturn that long-standing law. And when they say Roe versus Wade was egregiously wrong, I mean, what's their argument? Why do they think that? Well, astonishingly enough, he made the point that a right to abortion is not, quote-unquote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. And to some extent, that is true. The law is only 50 years old, but half a century is quite a long time. And what's more, if you look back, quite a lot of laws of America are of fairly recent standing and yet nonetheless very established. You know, civil rights legislation, all kinds of laws. It was only a couple of hundred years ago that you had rampant slavery in America. So the idea of what is deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions is definitely subject to change. And Sarah, do we know how this leak has come about? Because this does seem to be very new. We've never seen anything leaking out of the Supreme Court before. Well, it just highlights just how divided and polarised America is. Because, of course, the Supreme Court traditionally was a place of enormous respect. It's the sort of third wheel of the whole governing system of America. You have the president, you have Congress, and you have the Supreme Court the nine Supreme Court justices, though very much of differing opinions, are supposed to be very collegial. So the idea that somebody could go behind their backs and leak a document just shows how strong feelings are on both sides. Now, nobody actually knows who the leaker was. Was it some conservative, for example, who hoped to get these justices to stick to this majority draft opinion? Or was it a liberal person who wanted to make a hue and cry about the loss of rights that is coming down the pipeline for women? What we do know is that the Republicans are very much concentrating on the leak rather than what's in the judgment. And for the Democrats, it's the reverse. Last September, I spoke to one of the leading experts in the history of abortion law, Mary Ziegler. She's a law professor at Florida State University, and her most recent book is Abortion and the Law in America, From Roe versus Wade to the Present. As someone who studied the history of the issue, I asked Mary why abortion is still so controversial in America. In part, I think it's a function of the composition of America. There's a population of religious Americans, particularly white evangelicals, who feel strongly about abortion, who are quite unique to the United States. But a lot of it also has to do with the political history of abortion. Starting in the 1980s, both political parties made abortion what we would call a wedge issue, a way of turning out and rallying voters. And they've used abortion in the years since to raise a lot of money, to bring a lot of people to the polls who wouldn't otherwise be there. And so there's almost an outrage industry in America that fuels conflicts about abortion that goes beyond just demographic differences. Because if you actually look at polling in America on abortion, um, Mm. it quite closely resembles what you would see in the UK or elsewhere in Europe. So it's really more a function of differences in US abortion politics than it is a function of differences in the population. Where do average Americans sit when it comes to abortion? Most Americans are in favor of keeping abortion legal. They're in favor of keeping Roe v. Wade. They're in favor of abortion, but 
primarily earlier in pregnancy. The numbers drop off steeply the later in pregnancy you get. And they tend to be in favor of a lot of regulation of abortion, but not criminalization, which means a lot of Americans are conflicted about abortion, right? They want it to be legal and available, but they also are not necessarily comfortable with it. I mean, from the outside, it, it is, you know, it, it is fascinating and, and very odd to watch America you know, tearing itself apart over the issue of abortion, which you know most countries have sort of kind of put into the past now in terms of legal history. It's kind of established. Has it always been this divisive? Take us back to, say, the 19th century. What was the view then? In the United States, it's quite clear that until late in the 19th century, most states allowed abortion until quickening, which is the point at which fetal movement could be detected. So that was usually around uh, 16 weeks after a missed period. It's a little bit unclear exactly whether the quickening rule was accepted everywhere, whether Americans thought early abortions were moral, but it seems pretty clear that there weren't very many criminal prosecutions at all for earlier abortions. And that began to change in the late 19th century, and particularly the mid-19th century, when um, doctors, the leaders of the American Medical Association, which was just being founded, began demanding bans on all abortions, even early in pregnancy. And they had different reasons for doing this. Some of them were just sincere beliefs that life began at conception and that abortion was murder. Some of them were less pure motives in the sense that doctors wanted to use abortion as a point of differentiation to outcompete other kinds of medical care providers who were common in the 19th century, whether that was midwives or alternative medicine practitioners. And the American Medical Association's campaign was very successful. So by the end of the 19th century, virtually every American state banned pretty much all abortions with a narrow exception for when the patient's life was at risk. Wow. I mean, it's quite surprising hearing that now, hearing that it was the doctors who thought life began at conception and, and fought against it. How did that change? When did America decide that abortions, particularly in some cases, were okay? One of the turning points was the Great Depression. There's often been a spike in interest in abortion in the United States in periods of economic struggle. So the Great Depression, of course, was catastrophic economically worldwide. And as that was happening, abortion rates were increasing pretty much for women of all races and classes and pretty dramatically. And this was making the medical profession look bad in a way because it was clear that many doctors were performing abortions that were at least nominally illegal. So the medical profession tried to crack down on this by channeling all abortions into hospitals and forming what were called therapeutic abortion committees, which would weigh whether an abortion really was justified under the law and under medical practice or not. And at first, this seemed to work and the number of abortions went down. But as you can imagine, different doctors on different committees had very different views of when abortion was necessary. And they began more often to authorize abortion in cases when a patient's mental health would be threatened by continuing a pregnancy. And that idea of mental health could be quite broad, right? So sometimes doctors were using it to authorize abortions for social reasons or economic reasons. And it soon came to be the case that nearly three quarters of abortions in some hospitals were justified on this basis. Now for abortion opponents, that just made it seem as if people were authorizing too many abortions, but for a growing group of doctors, it made it seem as if the law itself were a problem and that the law needed to be reformed. And so they began a movement to reform the laws 
um, often at first to codify what they thought would be good medical practice. So basically scenarios where they thought they would already allow an abortion, like cases of rape or incest, cases of severe fetal abnormalities, severe health threats. And that model that was often called the American Law Institute model began to be passed in states in the 1960s. But of course, that was just the beginning. There was already an anti-abortion movement then because the anti-abortion movement was not content with a kind of compromise bill like the American Law Institute bill, primarily because they thought that it didn't recognize the personhood or humanity of a fetus or unborn child, right? If you have a, a fully fledged person, you can't kill them because of rape or incest or something. So the basic idea was they were generally opposed to all abortion legalization. But even this sort of fight between doctors and abortion opponents was just one chapter in a much broader struggle in the pre-Roe years. Coming up, the case that changed abortion law and the rights of women across America, Roe versus Wade. That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Kat Lay, health editor at The Times. Our health coverage spans everything from how the way we live can raise or lower our risk of diseases to advances in medical treatment, to the problems facing the NHS and their potential solutions. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In January 1973, the Supreme Court ruled on what's become one of the most famous cases in American legal history. Roe versus Wade. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. It was a case that made headlines around the world. But despite its fame, the details are often forgotten. For a start, who were Roe and Wade? Well... Jane Roe was the pseudonym given to the plaintiff, Norma McCorvey, in a case against her local district attorney in Texas, Henry Wade. 
Roe v. Wade began when Norma McCorvey, who was a relatively low-income woman in Texas, um, realized that she was pregnant and wanted to get an abortion. She initially was told by friends to lie and say that she had been sexually assaulted because they believed that she would have an easier time getting an abortion under those circumstances. In order to get an abortion, you said that you'd been raped, didn't you? I did say that. Which wasn't true. That's right. At the time, this she was 21, and this was her third pregnancy. She eventually found her way to two attorneys, Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington, who were looking for pregnant women who could be test case subjects. They wanted to change a law. I wanted to have an abortion. They said, Norma, don't you want to exercise your rights by having control over your own body? Yes, I said. And they used McCorvey's suit to argue that Texas's abortion law, which allowed for abortion only when a woman's life was at risk, to argue that that law was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court voted by 7 to 2 that the U.S. Constitution provides a right to privacy that protects a pregnant woman's right to choose whether or not to have an abortion. In the meantime, McCorvey never attended a trial actually gave birth during the course of the lawsuit and put the baby up for adoption. Yep, that's right. The most famous case that changed women's right to an abortion didn't actually end in an abortion itself. It ended with a baby. But it also ended with a legal precedent, a constitutional right for women in America to choose. Roe versus Wade provoked quite a reaction, although back then a remarkably polite one. Here's what you would have heard if you turned on CBS News that January in 1973. I think that uh, uh, to uh, raise the dignity of woman and give her freedom of choice in this area is an extraordinary event. That's Dr. Alan Guttmacher, the president of Planned Parenthood and, it would be safe to say, a supporter of women's right to an abortion. And I think that January 22nd, 1973, would be an historic day. In the Catholic corner, Monsignor James McHugh appeared on the programme to represent the right to life. In this instance, the Supreme Court has withdrawn protection for the human rights of unborn children, and it is teaching people that abortion is a rather innocuous procedure provided that there are proper legal safeguards. At first, it was much less intense than you may expect. Roe as a polarizing force in the United States was not as obvious in the days immediately after the decision. The decision did have a pretty dramatic effect on the anti-abortion movement, which had already been very well organized and winning impressive victories in the states, but had really still been a state-by-state affair with some state organizations being much better developed than others. After Roe, there was a real push to have a a national anti-abortion movement, and the movement also settled on a single goal. And so they essentially decided to focus on a constitutional amendment that would ban all abortions. There were also real questions about how accessible abortion was because many states didn't have any abortion providers. And so it was hard to predict, though, that the issue would become a political football, that it would be as polarizing as it is now, much less that it would spawn violence or dominate presidential elections. Roe versus Wade led inevitably to an increase in the number of abortions being carried out in America. There was at first a pretty 
steady and eventually dramatic increase in the number of abortions, really from the, the year after Roe all the way through the 1980s. Um, and that was a function of a few things. It was in part a function of the fact that birth control in America was pretty terrible <laughs> throughout the period. And so m people who were often having unwanted or unplanned pregnancies were often using abortion in part because they were not using birth control effectively. It also reflected the fact that different groups of people were accessing legal abortion for the first time. So we have data from before Roe. Obviously, it's somewhat limited by the fact that we don't know as much about illegal abortions as we would like. But when it comes to legal abortions, uh, we know that those people having abortions before Roe were primarily people with connections. So people who were primarily white, relatively well-to-do, relatively educated, who could kind of navigate the hurdles of the abortion system. After Roe, it was much easier to get an abortion. And so you began to see the population seeking the procedure being more likely to be lower income, more likely to be people of color, more likely to be young people. And so I think accessibility of abortion opened the door to a much broader group of people with unplanned pregnancies. And in the meantime, what happened to Norma McCorvey, the woman at the heart of the case? You said she had to have her baby, but what happened to her afterwards? Well, at first, uh, McCorvey became kind of an icon for the pro-choice movement. She would do speaking engagements and public appearances and was herself said she was very pro-choice and also became kind of emblematic of the pro-choice cause. After she became a little bit older in life in the 1990s, she converted to Christianity and was baptized in a swimming pool. And at that time also decided to swear off her former belief in illegal abortion and she became an anti-abortion activist. For years and years, I used to think that um, it was a, a woman's right to choose, period. Uh, but after working in four abortion clinics here in the Dallas area, and learning a lot more, um, I, I started having inner conflicts with myself and um, I, I really got extremely depressed when women would call into the clinics and want to make appointments for second trimester abortions. And there's been some dispute ever since. There was in fact a documentary in recent years where McCorvey told the documentarian that she had only switched sides for money. I think both pro-life and pro-choice forces tend to frame McCorvey as a victim. Pro-life forces essentially say that McCorvey had not understood what abortion was and it had been unwittingly used to legalize a procedure that harmed lots of women. Pro-choice forces essentially frame McCorvey as someone who was down on her luck and desperate for money that the pro-life movement exploited to make good talking points. The reality is probably somewhere in between because McCorvey herself was quite savvy and I think understood her value to both movements and sometimes parlayed that into financial security she wouldn't have otherwise have had. I mean, her story does tell us an awful lot about how the issue has played out in, in America over the last few decades. Talk us through the politics. When did it become such a political lodestone? It wasn't immediately after Roe. For the better part of a decade after Roe, what you see is both parties sort of trying to stay away from the abortion issue and viewing it as a way of sort of unnecessarily dividing their constituents. And you see politicians staking out middle ground positions on abortion. So Jimmy Carter, for example, said he was not for criminalizing abortion, but he also didn't want public insurance programs to pay for abortions, and he wanted to focus on contraception as an alternative to abortion. Gerald Ford, his Republican competitor, 
said he was opposed to abortion, but also was opposed to anything banning abortion. He instead wanted each state to have the ability to decide, which was not what anti-abortion groups themselves wanted. And both parties had both pro-life and pro-choice forces in them. For example, one of the most powerful Democrats in the Senate, Thomas Eagleton, was a pro-life Democrat. The governor of New York, long-term governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, was a prominent pro-choice Republican. And so it was really impossible to identify either party with a cause. That began to change in the 1980s, in part because Ronald Reagan recognized that the abortion issue might be a way of helping to destroy a democratic coalition that had been in place since the New Deal. And in particular, he wanted to win over Catholics and evangelical Protestants who may have been inclined to vote Democratic for economic reasons, but were more socially conservative. What single issue could say more about a society's values than the degree of respect shown for human life at its most vulnerable, human life still unborn? And so Reagan then became very strongly and openly opposed to abortion in ways that made the Republican Party, as he would put it, the party of life. Democrats at the same time were becoming more influenced by feminists and by the women's movement. And so really by the 1980 election and then in the elections that followed, each party began to use abortion as a way to raise money, as a way to turn out the vote, as a way to kind of shore up political coalitions. And in the years since, abortion really has become a big business, not in the sense of providing abortion care, but in the sense of the politics and fundraising of abortion. And since then, since Roe v. Wade came in, it's sort of been chipped away at by various states. It's been such a political issue. Lots of people have tried to change the law. Where does it stand now? In the years since Roe, there was a decision called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which came at a time very similar to now when there was a six-justice Supreme Court majority in favor of reversing Roe, or so we thought. But the court didn't reverse Roe and instead created a new rule that's the rule that applies now, which is essentially that states can't unduly burden abortion. So on the one hand, that meant that there was still a right to choose abortion. On the other hand, it meant that states would have more room to pass incremental abortion restrictions. In the years since, they've passed literally hundreds of these laws, which has created kind of a patchwork in the United States so that in some states, it's already very difficult to get an abortion. And then in other states, abortion is legal, accessible, and and publicly funded. When I spoke to Mary Ziegler last September, our interview ended with this closing thought. I really do think we're looking at a probability of Roe being overturned in the near future, and the question is how quickly and how, not when. And now, with this leaked majority opinion from the Supreme Court, the right to an abortion will vary for women across America, depending on the state they live in. A number of states have already put trigger laws into place, banning abortions and punishing those who carry them out. Those laws have been unenforceable, whilst Roe v. Wade was still being upheld by the Supreme Court. But the moment that decision is reversed, they'll instantly come into effect. Overnight, some women in America will have to travel thousands of miles to get an abortion, and even that might not be allowed. Sarah Baxter has been reporting on the political divisions and the culture war that are already tearing America apart. Will this patchwork of completely different rights for women make America even more like two separate countries bound together under one flag. 
One of the fascinating things is that a lot of the states with these trigger laws ready to go into effect or abortion bans on the statute books ready to be revived are in the South. If you you remember, America did have a civil war between the North and the South. This idea of states' rights controlling their own destinies was very much at the heart of that civil war. Now, I'm not suggesting there will be war in America or anything like that, but the idea of having very separate legislations, as you say, under one flag, is going to be very unpredictable, I think, in its consequences, because I suspect it's going to drive Americans further and further apart, depending on where they live. Some people talk of the great sorting that's going to come, where people who are living... The great sorting. Yes, where people who are living in democratic, so-called blue states, but don't like the legislation there, will start moving to the red or Republican conservative states, and vice versa, so that you'll get even more intense polarization in America, where how you live and the laws that you are obliged to obey are vastly different. I mean, Alabama wants to pass a law that will make providing an abortion a crime punishable by 99 years in prison. That's more than what you get for rape. And Louisiana wants to pass a law ruling that all abortions are homicide, i.e. murder. Now, we hear a lot of pro-life campaigners say that women are not going to be prosecuted, just abortion providers. But is that the case if there's a homicide statute on the books? We'll have to see again. And I mean, it does sound like the Supreme Court is more political than ever. You know, we've always had judges appointed by presidents, so there's always a, a slight allegiance. But in the past, they have been more collegiate. It hasn't seemed like they are properly split along party political divides as fiercely as they are now. Because for once, a third of the court has basically been appointed by one president, a a one-term Republican president. Donald Trump has shaped a lot of the Supreme Court as it is now. Now, absolutely, it divides along party lines, just like everybody else. It's astonishing to think that, isn't it, that three out of the nine Supreme Court justices were appointed by Donald Trump. You know, it's very interesting because Donald Trump himself is not that exercised by the question of abortion. He's raised the temperature on it a bit. But when asked about whether or not he'd ever known anybody or been with anybody who'd had an abortion, he was notably silent. The fact is that the evangelical Christians in America backed Donald Trump as a sinner who was going to save America. They didn't necessarily approve of his personal conduct, but they felt that he would deliver for them. And the fact is, he has. You point out that he was a one-term president. Yes, he lost the White House. He lost Congress for the Republican Party, which no longer has a majority there. But he effectively won the Supreme Court for the Republicans. One of the things that his most ardent supporters say about him is promises made, promises delivered. And the Supreme Court verdict on Roe v. Wade is considered to be one of those promises delivered by Donald Trump to his core base of evangelical Christian voters. And so this is a leak of a draft decision. I mean, we've never seen anything like this before, but what happens next in the process? Is there any chance that it might be overturned, having seen the reaction, or is this what we think will now go through? Is this a final judgment? 
Well, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, who is a moderate conservative, who no longer, frankly, looks in much control of his own court there, has said it is just a leak. And maybe he's working behind the scenes to change people's views. I mean, one of the people that appears to have backed this majority decision, Brett Kavanaugh, over whom there was a very bitter confirmation battle, did seem to promise to some Republican senators of the sort of moderate persuasion that he thought that Roe v. Wade was established precedent because it had been on the books for 50 years. Now, the draft leak suggests he's totally moved and changed his position. Now, it may be that others are havering. We know what Justice Alito thinks. We think we know what Justice Amy Coney Barrett thinks because she's always been anti-abortion and that was one of her key qualifications for being snuck in at the 11th hour there Mm. just as the Trump presidency was coming to an end. And a very young Supreme Court justice, so she'll be there for some decades yet. Donald Trump's appointment of three Supreme Court justices is not just consequential in the short term, but for decades to come. I mean, in a way, has this whole has this whole question actually sort of raised doubts about the efficacy now of the Supreme Court? You know, we know it's it's in, become incredibly political. It's no longer the institution that rises above politics and tries to give a, the, the nation a sense of continuity. Instead, it is incredibly political. You're not getting sort of wise elderly judges necessarily because people are trying to get very young people in so that they change the way that the, the court goes for the next few decades. I mean, has has the system, is it failing? Well, Democrats think so, and some of them are tempted to so-called pack the court, i.e. increase the number of Supreme Court justices so that they can make up the balance. But, you know, that's a sort of adding game that could go on forever, really, depending who's in power. And the truth is, despite my personal views about Roe v. Wade and the importance of abortion access, you have to say that Republicans felt very disenfranchised by a liberal court for decades. You know, they're getting their own back on the Democrats. And Sarah, if there is an attempt to pack the court, you know, if the the Democrats do change the rules and try to put more judges in there, I mean, is there any chance that the Roe v. Wade decision will come back again? What's more likely is that the Democrats will attempt to pass legislation codifying Roe v. Wade so that it's not just a question of what the Supreme Court thinks, that Congress passes the law. There's just one big snag about that. They don't have the majority now, and they're unlikely to perform well in the midterm elections. And it's far more likely that you get a Republican Party in Congress that's in a position to uphold overturning Roe v. Wade than it is passing new legislation permitting abortion. So, Everything remains very much in flux. And there's so many aspects of the law, Manvi, that we don't even know how they're going to operate yet. For example, it all raises fascinating questions as to whether or not states in the so-called Bible Belt that are banning abortion can reach out into other states which permit abortion and stop their abortion providers, say, from giving an abortion to a woman from Alabama or Texas or Mississippi or Louisiana, prosecute those doctors or sue them. Beyond their own borders. It is. they, They want to pass laws doing that. Sarah, for you, you know, you grew up in America. You've lived there on and off for decades now. Does this feel a bit like, you know, the arc of history, which we were always told would bend towards progress and which America sort of drew, really, for much of the rest of the world to follow? Is it now bending backwards? 
Well, I do worry about that. Of course, I also fear, as someone who did grow up in the South, that a lot of the old divisions that I actually thought were healing and thought would had gone forever, it's no longer the case, and that these old fissures and cracks in American society are reappearing. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Sarah Baxter, who writes from America for The Sunday Times, and Mary Ziegler, author of Abortion and the Law in America, from Roe vs. Wade to the present. The producers today were Katie Tarrant and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. 